There is a new king in town. Novak Djokovic has been dethroned with the word on air. Carlos Alcaraz is the king of Wimbledon. Let's break it all down. Alcaraz, Djokovic, Jabor, Vondrosova, and the Ashes with Chabelle Corey. All of this podcast. Let's get into it. Perhaps one of the most remarkable tennis matches in, in recent history. There's obviously recency bias to that. We've obviously seen way more remarkable matches. Federer, Djokovic in 2019 being one. You can even say Sinner Alcaraz um, was more remarkable in the US Open last year. But this was sort of remarkable due to all the storylines around it, due to the way the match unfolded. Um, I think the best way to break it down is sort of just go storyline set by set. Um, but for those that are tuning in for the result, Carlos Alcaraz has defeated Novak Djokovic to lift Wimbledon to ensure that Djokovic doesn't win what is fifth Wimbledon in a row. Um, and Carlos Alcaraz's first Wimbledon on the surface where he was probably the least likely to win initially. You probably say Alcaraz will win US, French and Australian first before he wins Wimbledon. He's already won US, now he's won Wimbledon. The start of the match had immense parallels to the, the Yannick Sinner and the Novak Djokovic semi-final. Um, Alcaraz had a break point in the first game of Djokovic's serve, he didn't capitalize, and then Djokovic broke right back. And then from then on, Alcaraz just lost sort of his, his rhythm and he seemed very, um, very, very nervous. Um, I have a stat here. Um, his second serve points were at 14% while his first serves were only at 65%. Uh, he had seven more unforced errors at Novak Djokovic. It was probably some of Alcaraz's worst t- tennis in the tournament. It wasn't the right time for it. It was, it was a disastrous start. I'm not going to say that he capitulated, but I think to an extent it was a lot of nervousness. But from the other end, it was Djokovic just efficiently capitalizing on how nervous Alcaraz was because Djokovic only produced two unforced errors. And that is the that is what Novak Djokovic is at 35, 36, 37, 38. You're gonna see brilliant shots from Djokovic, you'll see that. But it won't be the level of, you'll see more brilliant shots from Alcaraz than Novak Djokovic, because that's just how Djokovic plays. He's a steady, consistent, relentless defender. He will be as efficient as possible, and he will break you down. Two unforced errors indicates that he will make less mistakes than you make, therefore you can't make many, yeah? And in the first set, unfortunately, Alcaraz made too many. And Novak Djokovic was um, one set up. And then the biggest question in my mind while watching this was, Yannick Sinner didn't respond. Can Carlos Alcaraz respond? And, well, Alcaraz can um, can respond. And that was seen by his determination and his focus in the, in the second set. He became way more aggressive, I felt. Um, and he went hard at Novak Djokovic. He went, he went really hard. The forehand was much better. Um, the second serve points were much better. He was attacking the second serve a bit, a bit more off the baseline. Um, the drop shots were still not as good. Djokovic was reading them, but towards the end of the set, the drop shots did get much better. Um, but obviously, the major storyline of this set was the tiebreak. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Novak Djokovic had set point. Missed it with the backhand, and he said in the press conference, perhaps his biggest regret of the match. Then he had another backhand, it made it, but it was, it was quite weak. And also now Alcaraz was in position to um, win the set, and he held his nerve. He was behind in the tiebreak, and if he lost that tiebreak, I reckon he probably loses Wimbledon. Because when Djokovic goes two sets up, you find it hard for Alcaraz to to come back, especially considering the tennis we played in the second set, because he played some pretty good tennis um, in the second set. Um, Djokovic has won last of his, he's won 15 tie breaks in a row before yesterday. Um, that shows the sort of the feat of what Alcaraz did. Um, he held his nerve in the tiebreak and he showed Djokovic, you know what, I'm not like Yannick Sinner, I'm not like the other guys who succumb to you when you get within breathing point of, uh, within breathing distance or within sort of sniffing, sniffing range of a set. I, I don't succumb because I know that I can hold my nerve when pressure's on me and that I'll get within sniffing distance of a set and I can hold my nerve then. And um, 
to be fair, I think that was uh, one of the storylines of the match. Uh, Alcaraz actually holding his nerve more than Djokovic uh, from the first set onwards. Um, and especially the third set, that, that long, very, very, very eternally long third set game, which will break down. But that, that was an example of it. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that Alcaraz winning that set was perhaps the changing point in the match because the match could have been over, I feel like, if Djokovic had just nailed those backhands. Or now, that the fact that Alcaraz won, there was a bit of confidence and there was a bit of sort of, Djokovic seemed a bit um, mentally fried, which I'm also going to expand on. Um, David Law. Yeah, so David Law made the, the observation that Alcaraz won every first point of Djokovic's service game in the second set. I think that is indicative of the extra pressure that Alcaraz was trying to sort of bestow upon Djokovic. He was saying that maybe I was playing a bit too timid, maybe I was letting Djokovic dictate a bit too much of terms in the first set. And he was definitely more aggressive in the second set, but I think he also grew into the match more. And I think it was a bit more of that that determination focus I was talking about, because he mentioned it in the, in the post-court, sort of the on-court interview after the match where he said oh, okay i have to raise my level so he was like bro what am i doing i have to raise my level and he was just more determined more locked in in sort of what he was doing um and it was just that set that kept him alive as we said let's let's move to the third set um obviously with the 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 shock the serve clock violation the, the crowd is sort of cheering for Alcaraz heavily, Djokovic's antics with the crowd. There was a bit of sort of mental angst and fatigue building with Novak Djokovic, especially the way he sort of, in his words, squandered the, the tiebreak. Um, so there were a few signs of Djokovic fatiguing or losing control of the match. Um, and he was just not being as efficient as he usually is. Um, and how do you know that? Because he failed to capitalize on key opportunities in the third set. He had two breakpoints on Alcaraz initially at the start of the third set end up losing the game. Then on his own serve, um, it was 3-1. This was a 25-minute game, which had like 14 deuces or 16 deuces, something like that. He had four, five, I think it was four or six opportunities to close out the game, and he, and he failed to do so. Um, and in the end, Alcaraz broke him there, and then the set was easy for him at that stage. Um, and Jokic sort of had to hold there because he had already been broken once. And he would have put pressure back on Alcaraz's serve to, you know, um, hold it all the way through because it goes back into another tie break. You'd still back Novak Djokovic. I, I doubt he'll lose two tie breaks, right? And then when he goes two sets up, it's big. So he he had to sort of win that game to stay within touching distance of the set. And he had so many opportunities to do so. Um, but he couldn't. And then that's when I started thinking about that very major stat that we've all been taught about. When Djokovic is 78-0 at Wimbledon after he's won the first set. So he he hasn't lost a match at Wimbledon after he's won the first set. In his last 104 Grand Slam matches. Um sorry, yeah, in, in the last 104 Grand Slam matches where he's won the first set, he's 104-0. So when Djokovic wins the first set, he doesn't lose. But now all of a sudden Alcaraz won the second set, and then he's holding on to key moments in the third set. You felt that whoa. The tide is changing here. Novak Djokovic is actually the one crumbling. He's actually the one fatiguing um, mentally, especially physically. Yeah, it makes sense. There's a 16-year age difference. But to be fair, there are even question marks regarding Alcaraz's physical durability after the cramping um, at the French Open. He insisted it was due to mental tension and sort of it led to physical tension. But there were still question marks. Can he hold up in a five-step match? Which obviously he can. Um, I think one of the other major storylines are one of the sort of the, the key factors in Alcaraz's victory because Djokovic in this final was his defense especially in the fifth set. It was remarkable. We all know that Alcaraz has the ability to out-hit most opponents. Um, and he can probably out-hit Djokovic. It would be much harder to out-hit Djokovic because he's probably the best defender, one of the best defenders the tennis world has ever seen. Um, but he definitely has the power in his strokes to really test Djokovic's defense. But while that did occur, and we'll discuss it with the amount of winners that Alcaraz had compared to Djokovic, it was his own defense which limited the win the winners and the efficiency of Djokovic. He made Djokovic work hard for every point. Too often, um, 
when Djokovic steamrolls his opponent, even the Yannick Sinner match is a good example. He gets into a position where he just wears the opponent down, breaks him down, and it's an easy winner for him. But what Alcaraz does with his sort of reach out backhand and his um, sort of always on the front foot forehand, turning sort of defense into attack, um, he puts the onus on Djokovic to return his shot back. And all of a sudden, that Djokovic is getting into situations where that easy winner isn't coming, so he's trying to force a few shots, um, and he's making more errors. He's had to come up with essentially harder shots to try and win a point, and he couldn't do that yesterday because Alcaraz was so relentless. He was wearing him down. Um, obviously, you have to be fair to Djokovic's level. If Djokovic and Alcaraz were again in the, the US Open, yeah, if Djokovic and Alcaraz were again at the US Open, it'll probably be a similarly contested match but you still probably favor Djokovic because he didn't play to his level but I don't think you can say he didn't play to his level because he necessarily had an off day and Alcaraz didn't contribute to that I think Alcaraz put Djokovic off his level um and there was a great quote from Barney Rone just reading off my phone right now on the Guardian for the the piece that he wrote in this match and I, I read it verbatim but if Djokovic did look below his best here at times it would be wrong to attribute this to declining powers Exactly. Djokovic has not become bad at tennis. He has not become worse than Alcaraz. Alcaraz put his level of game at such a high level. He surprised Djokovic with the, the versatility in his game, especially on the surface. The Djokovic level looked below than what it was. And to be fair, it was below than what it was. But that was forced upon the, by the playing style of the opponent. It wasn't that Djokovic became bad. It's that he started to get worn down by Carlos Alcaraz, something that Djokovic has been able to do every other opponent. Alcaraz said no. Not, not to me. And I think that's a testament to Alcaraz's resilience to sort of segue into that storyline. Lost the first set, played horribly. The easy mentality is like, all right, man, just, just don't embarrass yourself here. Um, let's just stay afloat. And you could just be very deflated, like, oh my God, I've hyped myself up for this game for the last few days. And I'm playing this level. And Alcaraz is like, no, what the heck is this? You should be embarrassed of yourself. You can't be playing like this. You need to go higher. Force yourself to go higher. Won the second set. Third set. One fourth set, he lost. Now Djokovic is back in the match and is going to a fifth set. Who are you backing to hold their nerve in a fifth set of a grand slam? The person who's won one grand slam or the person who's won twenty three. Probably the person who's won twenty three. Probably the person who's won the last four on the surface. Probably the person who is better on the surface than compared to a person who wasn't even expected to make this sort of deep of a run before Queens on the surface. But no, Alcaraz said that doesn't matter. Uh, history sort of doesn't have a memory, I guess. Um, if I played my potential, if I play aggressive, if I if I play my shots, if I dictate terms, I'll be able to win the fifth set. And he holds his nerve, and had that resilience, that maturity, that sort of mental strength that that he sort of showed in, in face of adversity is what was so eye catching to me. And it's champion mentality. Uh, that's why it tells you that Carlos Alcaraz is the head of the youngsters in his generation, Yannick Sinner, and he is the heir to the throne. Novak Djokovic has been momentarily dethroned. I don't think it's going to be a, a perennial thing. Like, I don't think Djokovic is done. I still think he'll win a few. But I think there's a rivalry here in hell. Um, and I think now you have two contenders for every grand slam rather than just Djokovic running away with it. We, I sort of alluded to it earlier. But yeah, let's obviously talk about, as is sort of customary with any Carlos Alcaraz uh, match, let's talk about his hitting ability and just brilliant shot making. He had 66 winners compared to Novak Djokovic's 32. And I think Djokovic's body language summed it up perfectly. At times he was just like, what can I do to this man? And um, he himself, Djokovic, Djokovic himself said in the press conference that he hasn't played a player like Alcaraz. He has the best abilities of the games of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Um, and when saying that, he, he doesn't mean that Alcaraz has a unique playing style, a very unique technique, which makes him very different. While to an extent Alcaraz's technique is unique because of how good it is, what Djokovic is mainly alluding to is like, I haven't played against a player who's so all around in all the facets of his game. Essentially, he was talking about the brilliance of Alcaraz. He hasn't played against a 20-year-old or maybe even all time of a player who's able to sort of be good in such various aspects, um, be a mix of Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. And it's true, he just has the ability to produce shots at times where you shouldn't be able to produce shots. That forehand is elastic, it's 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 booming, it's um it's a cannon 
the, the back end held up so well under defense yesterday. The serve was mostly a right um, after the first set. The slice is developing. The drop shot is good. The net play is one of the best on tour. There is a versatility there. There is developing. And as he sort of just hones his confidence on all the surfaces, it looks an unbeatable package. Um, it really does. I think the best way to sort of sum up this match and to recap it is to sort of compare the storylines or juxtapose the storylines with, with the French Open and now at Wimbledon. French Open, while maybe Alcaraz wasn't a favorite, he was close to a favorite. Most people were like, okay, this is when Novak Djokovic gets tested. It's Alcaraz's surface. He's played an unbelievable tournament. Djokovic dropped a set against Hachinov before that. Um, while Alcaraz lost the first, first set, he rebounded back and the match looked good. And everyone's like, okay, Alcaraz gonna win this. But then he admitted in the, in the press conference after he cramped that the tension of the build-up to the match and the tension of losing the first set and rebound, it got to him and it wore his body down, which led to his cramping. So then there were questions raised of Alcaraz's mental strength. Can he cope with Djokovic? Um, there were questions raised of his fitness and how demanding the style of play of Alcaraz is because he's always chasing every single point down. He relies on sort of brilliance from chasing down points. Can he? Can, is that sustainable against a player like Novak Djokovic? And then to produce that yesterday, it's a perfect redemption moment. It's a perfect shutdown of any questions to prove that I am the real deal. This is my statement career win. When you look at the win, um, when you look at Carlos Alcaraz's career in hindsight after he's he's finished gracing the tennis world, yes, you talk about the US Open as his first Grand Slam win, but you talk about this win as the one where Alcaraz proved that he is the best um, currently. He is the best currently, or if not, he's at the same level as, as Novak Djokovic. Because he wasn't meant to win this one. This was Djokovic's surface. Djokovic had more better skills. Alcaraz was honed. And there were all those question marks coming on from the French Open. And he put that put them all to bed in this match. He lost the first set. Looked awfully nervous. Played a bad set. But guess what? He came back like he did in the French Open. But this time he controlled the tension that there was. He held his nerve. He didn't cramp up. He didn't physically wear down. He didn't emotionally wear down. In fact, he was the one that was stronger in all those aspects. He wore the opponent down. Um, because of sort of how he just kept asserting his dominance and winning winning the crucial points. Um, lost the fourth set, but still held his nerve. Uh, as we said, um, and any questions regarding physical fitness and mental strength are clearly put to bed because he won the third longest final in Wimbledon history. So he shows he's there for the long game against the best of the best. And if there isn't a best, and he was the best, like statistically the best in Novak Djokovic. Um, obviously, in terms of fitness, yeah, it does logically make sense for Alcaraz to be more fit, fit than Novak Djokovic. 16 year age difference, but there were questions there and he shut them down. And I think he sort of rebuked any nightmares that were hanging around from the aftermath of Roland Garros. This is a statement win. And it was such a sight. It was, you're going to feel would be happy for him. I, I think there was a bit of sadness for Novak Djokovic, especially at that moment with his son at the end of the match. But it's nice to see the emergence of hopefully a generation talent in Carlos Alcaraz. Let's move on to the women's final. Anjabor versus the unseeded Mondrosova. First, I want to focus on actually the before they walked in, um, walked onto the court, the the visualization, the mental control, and the composure required to sort of thrive in such an occasion. I think you could see how determined both players were to nail that part. Um, just when they were standing in the in the long room, waiting to go out, Shabor had her eyes closed. For a minute before they walked on the court, um, and she also, and she had been in this occasion last year, so you could tell that she was already a bit like. At that time, I didn't think tense. At that time, I didn't think anxious, but she knew how big this moment was, and she was getting into a visualization routine. Um, and then both players had a huge smile when they walked down the court and were, were sort of greeted to a loud cheer by the crowd, and I think that's the sort of the wholesomeness and, and, the, and the positivity and the optimism and the, the hope sport provides uh, in, in sort of moments because they're human beings we can't forget these players are human beings and they were at the biggest occasion they couldn't help but smile and be like 
man, I, I really reached here. You know, it was a moment of satisfaction. Um, and I think it's very hard for the players to not bask in this emotion because after all, this is what they work for. This is sort of the epitome of, of being rewarded for the, for the hard work. Um, and I think that was reflected in the way that match started. There were two breaks early on, one from each player. Uh, Jabez was off initially um, quite badly. Um, and her timing was off on her shots. The height of her shots was off. She was keep, she kept hitting the net, which turned out to be a very salient storyline, and we'll break down why. Um, and I think that was probably just because she was not used to sort of the, the style of Androsova, um, this sort of floaty forehand, this topspin dominant um, shot range, and she just wasn't getting the timing right. She wasn't getting the depth right. Um, but... But early on in the match, you still found that Von Drosa was the one not adapting and not being able to imprint herself in the game after Jabal was close to making it 3-0. And I think that's when the match changed. Um, I think Von Drosa grew into the match and Jabal was just so tense. And I think you could tell by her body language that it was just so like... I think she was, to an extent, being forcefully stoic and forcefully sort of very serious there wasn't that sort of level of enjoyment after winning a great point she wouldn't smile to her team or she wouldn't you know have a, a huge fist bump to her team it was just like a a, a sort of a, a determined fist pump and sort of then okay there's still business to handle out here i got to focus in and i think that sort of tension of just constantly sort of worrying about every single point it, it sort of built up and she even said she woke up stressed um and there's a difference between the way her and Alcaraz sort of handled it because the mentality is similar as Alcaraz put pressure on himself to raise the level, but he would focus on each point, like he would raise the level on each point, and he'd enjoy that point, and then it'd go back and it'd sustain it, he'd get his concentration back. Shabor was sort of in this web of trying to keep her concentration there, but the irony was it was never really there because she was exercising a full potential because I think of how tense and stressed she was and obviously when stuff doesn't start to go her way the mistakes recur and that's what happened in the first set um she just was not able to cope with the depth of Andrasova's strokes um and the change of pace of Andrasova presents there were unreal amount of unforced errors she was broken thrice in the first set and there were so many times where that forehand barely made over the net and at times it, did, it would just hit the net um she wasn't in the right positions and it was just not there it wasn't happening for her yet you felt that there was hope in the second set when she um took the early lead but then once again a capitulation and yeah man it was it was a sad it was one of the sad storylines of Wimbledon not to say that Andresa didn't deserve the victory she deserved the victory she she played good opponents to get that stage she played great matches to get that stage she played a great final she she basically played the exact way she needed to sort of nullify the the flaws and anxieties associated with her opponent um, so well done, she's completely deserves it. For an unseed player to win Wimbledon is a remarkable storyline for Fonza Jabor. You can't help but feel for her. You know what, that's a third Grand Slam final. She doesn't know how to sort of, unfortunately, face the occasion yet. And perhaps she puts a bit too much pressure on herself. Rather than that, it should be like, okay, I've got here because I'm good. I've got here because I beat the likes of Rebecca and Sabalenka. So I'm good enough. Kvitova. Yeah, so I'm good enough, so let me just go out there and play my game, stick to my routines, have my supporters around me, and visualize when stuff goes wrong. So before the match, visualize what's going to go wrong and try to adapt to that. Obviously, this is coming from a very neutral point of view. You don't know what she goes through. It's it's very hard to empathize with that for a person who hasn't played top-level sport. Um, but yeah, this is sort of the detached point of view that I had towards I think both are great players. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with both career storylines. Would Jabal be able to get to a Grand Slam final ever again? If she does, will she hold a nerve? And is sort of Androsova a one a one slam wonder? I don't think so. I think there's actually a lot of stability in that in that game that she has. So it'll be interesting to see if she also breaks into sort of the the top threshold of of, of the WTA tour. But yeah, that, that's tennis for, for now. Um, We'll continue to cover it on this podcast uh, as sort of the 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 US season, um, the US swing clicks off. 
But for now, I think the, the focus will be turned towards a bit more football and a bit more cricket as the Ashes come. And we'll be back next week with another episode, more football tactical stuff. We're working behind the scenes hard um, to, to bring the content. So if you did enjoy, if you can put a subscribe on YouTube, share the video around, leave a like, leave a comment. If you're listening on your podcast app, uh, a follow on your podcast app is always much appreciated. Good reviews, sharing the podcast around, any feedback is always much appreciated. See you next week. Let's discuss the ashes. I've got my a good good Twitter colleague, I guess, Shavel Corey. He runs a quick blog. Uh, I'll be I'll link everything in the description. Yeah, he has his own sort of ashes podcast. There is a podcast in general that he he does uh, after each match. Um, so I, I I'm grateful to have him uh, have him join me here. And we'll, we'll let's how about we run through what happened in the last test match? Obviously, as a Australian fan, you're you're gonna be. Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> As a Australian fan, you're going to be a bit, a bit disappointed, I think, with the, with the showing. Um, yeah. Run me through it. What are your initial thoughts on that match? Like, what did you think Australia played well? Did you think they they let the ball slip? Because that's what I feel. I, I feel they, yeah. they let the ball slip. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, definitely the latter. Uh, you know, the, the start we had to the test match and, and the position we had England in on day two. Uh, five down for not many. Uh, and they're 2-0 down. And... Um, yeah, I think there's some uh, some key points we're going to touch on in this podcast, I'm sure. But but the way we bowled to the tail, um, and then also the way we batted in our second innings, uh, particularly in the Manus, Lavashane, and Steve Smith shots in that period, really let the advantage slip. So, and then from then on, it was very even contest, and Australia were always trying to fight to stay to stay on top. But um, England, England were always sort of I felt ahead of the game from that point on. Yeah, I think like letting letting the advantage slip. I think that's actually been mm. the story of the whole series. I think England have done both it. teams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think England have done it, and I think Australia have done it. So uh, the first test, um, Australia, England probably could have got a, a sort of a bigger score in the first innings, uh, the declaration. Yeah, um, but then Australia probably could have got a bit of a, a bigger um, bigger lead, maybe, um, and in the second Absolutely. test match. Um, the second test match at Lords, um, it, it was like that throughout. And England sort of a lot of soft dismissals, uh, short ball plan, obviously. Um, yeah. And then it has been a third, bit like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The third test match, I think, was a bit more from from Australia's end. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I, I guess what, what what do you think needs to improve from Australia's end? What are your main concerns with the Australian team? Yeah, I think um, I, I reacted it like immediately after the game. I wanted to share my thoughts, and and one of the key things was, um, you know, sort of when you got the foot on the throat, um, you know, you got to keep press going. down. Yeah. You know, press down. Don't don't let up. Yeah. That's you know that's so uncharacteristic of Australia in general. You know, we've grown up watching Australia uh, when they've got the foot on the throat, they never let up. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in this series, it's it's happened a couple of times. This match on a larger scale, and it ended up in the defeat. Another thing I wanted to touch on as well. I think I'm not going to only say it's Pat Cummins. I think it's a, a team thing and a team management thing. And I think Coach Andrew McDonald is in on it as well. But very mm. defence, very early in the field. Um, I think this can divide opinion. Uh, you know, I have some people say it worked in the first couple of Test matches, but when you're relying on England making the mistakes. It's always fraught with risk. True. For me, for me, I'm not overly. I don't mean to say it as a as a way of being critical of the team. I'm actually saying it as a way to compliment the team, to compliment the bowlers, and to say back yourselves a little bit more. Try to get these guys out early in their innings. Bring the yep. field up a little bit. Force them to try to hit through the gap. If they play some good shots, fair play to them. It's a good deliveries. Fair play to them, but don't go defensive straight away. Like Chris Wokes, for example, is a good. Don't get me wrong. He's a Good batter. It's a good batter. Yeah, yeah. He's solid, right? Yeah. But he doesn't warrant everyone on the boundary 100%. five, ten balls into his innings. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. Yeah, uh, you know. I, I think with but, a defensive approach, um, as you said, it's a it's a double-edged sword. Um, I think I think initially in the first two matches, I, I found it to be I found Pat Cummins to get a lot of criticism for that, um, and it was unwarranted because what what I think the plan is with this defensive field um, is essentially that. Because they want to sort of, because England scored at such a high run rate, four point six yeah. and over or something, which is the average run rate, um, by limiting their boundaries, they want them to create sort of they want England they want to try forcing yeah. them to create unnecessary boundary options, yeah. which is to yeah. an extent worked because England plays shots that are completely unwarranted. But where I agree Correct. with you is like 
when Joe Root comes out, there should not be a deep point ball one. That's his shot. That's how he gets off the mark. That's he. Everyone knows. Yeah, it's it's just like yeah, it's a, you know, and 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 you, as you would know, like the, the hardest time for any player coming in, it's when they're on zero. Exactly. <laughs> you just give them yeah. give them the easy single. It's the yeah, most yeah. relieving thing, you know. So even yeah, someone like odd. someone like Zach Crawley, like I, I get he likes driving on the up, but like he's also very vulnerable nicking off. He's also very vulnerable outside off. So why don't Big you time. force him to like go over the field? Why don't you force exactly. him to hit it a bit harder than yeah. he needs to hit? Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I agree. If, you got, if, if he's got fielders in close to him, he's he's, he's getting nervous. Like, cool, I've got to, I've got to play a good shot here to get runs rather than just exactly. dab it to yeah. point. And a lot of the time, I think they're bowled quite straight to him as well. How many shots has he hit through the leg side as well? They haven't quite mm-hmm. got it right, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of their planning and execution, while they've been solid, it can be better. It can. Yeah. Be. I think that was actually one of the big factors on the, the day three evening where England were like 30 for none at stumps, 27 for none, I think they were. That felt a lot. Like I, it was only like yeah, six oh, yeah. of those balls. Absolutely. But 27 for none was a lot for that night because you basically yep. knocked out like 10% of the target at, at that stage. In, in, exactly, in exactly. And the conditions were favorable for, for seam bowling, Yeah. you know, after um, all the rain and the overcast conditions, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Um, does does a bowling attack worry you? Australia's bowling attack. No, no, it doesn't. Um, as I said before, it, it's a very good bowling attack. It's just yeah. uh, you know you've got to back yourself. So particularly to the top, I think it's more the mindset rather than the actual attack. Hundred percent. Yeah. It's the mindset. Um, you know, it's it's you know when that's when 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 numbers eight, nine, and ten come in, all of a sudden Australia forget there's a second half of the pitch. They want to, when batsmen eight, nine, ten, eleven come in. Australia forget there's a second half of the pitch. They want to pitch it in their own half and put everyone back. I mean, there was one instance with Chris Wokes. He came in and I think he popped one up. I can't remember who the bowler was. It was a good delivery, bounced on him, hit the shoulder of the bat, popped up, and no one was there to catch it. Yeah. Everyone was on the boundary. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see anyone in the picture on the TV. Uh, so yeah, it's a bit mystifying. So I think Australia, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see what way they go, whether they pick Todd Murphy for the next game or whether they go with, you know, Josh Hazelwood yes. back, yeah. Michael Nisa as well. He's killing Michael it at Nisa. the moment. Yeah. Absolutely killing it. So there's some line. decisions to make. There's some yeah. decisions to make. But the personnel is good. It's just the mindset, I think, for me. Yeah. What do you think? I don't know about, what you think. Uh, um, look, I, I agree with you. I think the personnel is good. I think Pat Cummins is born brilliantly. I think that's six for. He I think is. Six in the first innings. It, it was great. Yeah. Mitchell Stark is, I think, bowling very attacking. I, I like to see it. Um and even Stark's run rate, he's going at like 4.45 and over, something like that. And that's less than the average basketball run rate. So it's not like he's leaking more than other yeah, balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Scott Boland, I've been a bit disappointed, but... Um, Me too. He just seems Agreed. a bit like... Seems a bit like, I don't know, nothing's happening. Uh, I think it, when, when, when players go after him... I think yeah. when players go after him, he has he hasn't responded very well. So he's mm-hmm. he's very used to being very economical and hasn't quite been the case. And I don't think he's responded particularly well. Lots of wayward stuff, which we're not used to from him. Yeah, I was also probably not happy with the way Pat Cummins used Todd Murphy. No, um, yeah, it was it was strange. Yeah, I think you had to use him earlier, like not with yeah. forty runs left. Um, yeah, and and, and one hundred and forty runs left. Also with the, that. Purity used him against um, Stokes on the the second day, I believe it was. That's a pressure situation. Ben Stokes, like yeah, yeah, yeah. E- even Pat Collins and Stark struggling against him in these situations. So exactly, exactly. It's a it's a I don't tough think, reckoning. Yeah, yeah. yeah, agree. I don't think they they treated him very well in this Test match, and uh, he only got two overs. And I saw a lot of comments saying, "Oh, it's the the hindsight hero saying that Murphy should have bowled and criticizing him." <laughs> but but it's not necessarily a hindsight thing. It was actually at that point when they needed about 130. Just mm-hmm. needed a bit of a change of pace because yeah. it's not as if England were. It's not as if the the, the Australia fast bowlers were building so much pressure. England was still scoring at four point six, four point oh, seven over. Hundred percent, yeah. So a couple of overs of Todd Murphy may have been interesting, and just to encourage him to toss it up a little bit more, bowl a bit slower, and see what England do. And um, I think you just you just have to get him in the game, right? Like yeah. you're a bit desperate at this stage. Like you need wickets no matter what. The the quicks aren't regularly getting your wickets, yeah. so why not try someone else? Correct. If he has um, one bad over, then take him off. That's justifiable because you can't really have afford bad overs when there's 130 runs left. But agree, agree. Give him that over, as I think. Yeah, agree. And, and that was my point 
Yeah, and that was my point after the game as well. Is like Australia would rather lose the game trying to get the wickets rather than exactly. just letting England get their singles and twos and 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 accumulate to the target. I, yeah, you know, it was a you know, on the scoreboard. It was a close finish. Right, it was quite um, entertaining and and thrilling yeah. again. But you know, that was the narrative. But but for me, I I never felt it was too close. I felt England were in control for the most part, and it was a bit yeah. disappointing. Uh, I felt Australia never really built any pressure or any control. That has to be priority at Old Trafford. Got to build some pressure. Got to create some control. Get back to the basics, top of off stump, and nip it. And, and you got the skill to nip the ball either way. It's difficult to play basketball. It really. Yeah, is. I think, I think the the only only stage where I thought Australia had a sniff was when Bairstow got out. That's when I was like, uh oh, England, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. From that point on, though. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it was it was all England. That was that was really disappointing. That was a great opportunity. You're right that you know Bairstow was out. And, and just and then they went Stokes defensive. As well. Then they went defensive. They went very defensive when they could yeah. have really then put the pressure on and say, you know, he or two nil down, guys. Bit of yeah. chat in the yeah, field, yeah. two nil down. The pressure is all on. The whole the whole yeah. weight of the country is on you. Missed opportunity, but yeah. look, it's great for the series. That I, it's thought, two-one. I thought. I thought if we're going to say this discussion around defensive and aggressive, I, I thought that's why I like Mitchell Stark the way he's bowling because I think he's been probably the most aggressive bowler. He's constantly yeah. going full, searching for the stumps, and you could see that on yeah. um, day four to Moinali, um, and before yeah, that to it. Ben Duckett when he missed the straight one, essentially. He was going full, he was searching for them. He was going driven, but he was searching for the wickets. And I think yeah. Scott yeah. Boland was a bit more back of a length. Um, yeah. I think more reflective of that, I don't want to get hit um, sort of mindset. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. And and when we talk about attacking versus defensive, I, I, I'm not against putting fielders on the boundary, 100%. you know, but, but, but not immediately, um, mm. you know, and particularly to the lower order players as well. So yeah, hopefully Australia just maybe adjust that a little bit and have a bit of a bit more of a go at the new guys coming in. And then, um, you know, if they get away, then by all means, protect yeah. the runs, protect the boundaries. Yeah. I, I guess let's look at from the, the positive point of view, um, Australia might have a new number one test battle soon. In, in Travis Head, he's like nine ranking points away from Kane Williamson or something. He's been yeah, he's been it's quite remarkable. He, yeah, his rise has been fabulous. He was what first of all dropped in in Nagpur, the first test against India. Should um, never have happened. Yeah, yeah, that shouldn't <laughs> have happened. Um, before the twenty twenty one Ashes, uh, he was he was basically out of the team for a while there, and then he came with the Gabo, and he made that absolute magic of a knock because Australia been in trouble yes. I think, when he came in as well um so he's his rise has been remarkable and I, there was a stat that i read um it, it's not verbatim I, I don't remember the stat verbatim unfortunately um but essentially ever since his um return in like 2021 so ever since he came back from when he got dropped he's been striking at like a strike rate of 90 um that, that's around how quick, there quick yeah travis yeah. has been playing um and it's remarkable, but to an extent, I think England fed into that very like easily, especially on the the day three evening um, when he was batting with the tail. Yeah. So there's this obsession with the short ball plan, and um, the way I like to sort of describe it, I, I wrote a piece on it yesterday, uh, and the way I like to describe it is essentially they believe first of all that Travis had his weakness against the short ball. I actually think that is a bit of a misconception. I think he has a weakness against. A ball that is basically near his upper hip. So there's there's essentially a trend in his dismissals where Travis head like moves across. He gets cramped around his sort of leg side hip, and he looks like spot on. It and he gets best I dropped best I dropped the sitter off exact that exact shot in the first innings. You're right. Yeah. Um. And Mark Wood got him like that at Hobart in 2021. Correct. Um. Uh, got him like that in um the Australian summer. And Marco Janssen. Correct. Um, that's how he got out in the World Test Championship final. That's how I think Siraj got him. Um, yep. It's a trend in his dismissals, but England are going bumpers, bounces, and they have yes. deep square, deep mid, um, deep mid, deep mid, deep mid wicket. And Creek was had a good stat that Travis had actually averages like, um, he's sorry, he scored 70 runs at any ball that is pitched at around 10 meters or shorter. So he clearly feasts off bumpers or bounces. Interesting. So it's not necessarily sh- it's not necessarily bounces he struggles at. He sh- struggles at balls that are short of a length, but they're not finding that short of length delivery. Just just at that um, that rib region armpit exactly down leg yeah. side. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right, hundred percent. And and yeah. and it's also not only that. It's when he's he knows that it's an, it's going to be a short ball attack by the fields that they set and the approach they have. So he knows he's setting up for the short ball, 
Yeah. When, when the short ball is difficult to play when you're not sure when it's coming. Yeah. You know? uh, when you mix it up with the, with the full length deliveries and then you, you set the guy up with the short one. That's when it becomes tricky. Yeah. And I, I think um, I think you're completely right. Um, he's he's anticipating for a short ball plan. Yes. He's actually mm-hmm. changed up his stance. Um, if you look at his footage from the Australian summer, if you look at his footage from the, the previous Ashes, he was much more closed off and he'd move across towards the offside. Now his front foot goes basically down the line of leg stump. He has open stance essentially because he knows it's coming. And he, yep. he's just opening his leg up to pull it so yep. he doesn't get cramped up and sort of get That's sort right. of cramped up around that hip region. But right. as you said, Besto dropped him so that I think that weakness is still there. You just have to surprise him with that weakness because I don't think Great. I don't think the open stance is sort of ingrained into his muscle memory. I think when you surprise no. him, you can, you can get him out. Uh, agree, so agree, yeah, hundred percent. I think England need to go back to the drawing board uh, and figure that one out. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple, um, a couple of things that you know both teams can go back to the drawing board with, yeah. as we've ever spoken about. You know, so this 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 longer break between the test matches, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. You know what comes of it when we get to Old Trafford. Surely Warner plays at Old Trafford, right? I, I don't buy into Surely. Any of this. You think you think you think he'll play? That's what I think. What do you reckon? I have a feeling he will. I don't. I don't know if I would. That, look, the thing is, it's so tricky now. What do you do? You leave exactly. him. You leave him out. What do you do? I, I'll. There's the uh, the option. Is he in combat opener? Is it uh, Marcus Harris? Is that Marcus? There's Harris, Harris there, but is he going to look? Is he going to score more? I know Harris has been playing well in first class cricket, but is he going to come in and score more than Warner yeah. is against Broad? I I, I don't see Harris um, coming in. Uh, I think if Warner goes, they're going to do some funky opening. It's going to be either that's Travis what I'm, That's what I'm thinking as well. Now, I don't know if I'll do that because uh, Travis Head is killing it at number five. And yeah. I know Travis Head did well at opener in India, but it's a completely different ball game in England. And, and will, like, will Travis Head succeed against the seeming ball, against the new ball in England? I don't know. Mm. You're making a big change there. You, you know, you're taking a gamble. They've taken a very good number five player. He's got nearly number one in the world from that position. And then you're putting him an opener in, you know, the series is there for the taking. There's also an, the suggestion that Mitch Marsh opens, but I wouldn't do that either. I would not do that. So, yeah, it, it's I, very, very tricky. If you want to pick Mitch Marsh and Cameron Green in the same team, then you might have to do a bit of a funky thing. Do you open open with Marnus? That's not a bad option, but then who bats at three? Yeah. Who bats at three? Do you move Steve Smith up, but he's magnificent at number four? So, you know. Yeah, I reckon um, they'll go safe and go. Well, I don't think it's the safe option to go with Warner, but I think they'll go with Warner because of those I, reasons. I think so, and I think that's what they. I think that's what they should do as well. Because you reckon? I I don't know if it's. Look, I, I think in a utopian world where they had a an, an incumbent opener that they were confident in, I would drop Warner. But now, like hypothetically, let's say this situation happened in the previous Ashes and Kwaja came in for Warner instead. Um, I would totally allow that because I have, uh, I don't know, there's a sense of security and confidence I had when mm. even Usman Khwaja returned back into the team because I knew he's done yeah. it before at the level. But Marcus yeah. Harris, I, I don't know. Like, what's he going to get you? Like 25, 30 and then probably get yeah, out? what's he going to get you? Exactly, exactly. You know, I think Marcus Harris, I don't know if this is being too harsh, but he, he's very good at first-class level. But is that one of those players that just can't quite cut it at test level? I know he's only had 13 test matches, but yeah, I don't know. You, you play, play him over Warner, how many more is he going to get? That's the question. And with Labuschagne moving up, I, I just don't know. He just doesn't see him in the right headspace right now. And I think yeah, That's that, an interesting one as well. I yeah. think that dismissal in the second innings proved that. He was essentially premeditating a, basically a slog sweep. Then he realized it was yeah. a bit too tossed up, so he tried to sort of guide it finer into a sweep and just top-edged it. And essentially, he keeps getting to 30 and just gets himself out because he looks it's the good issue, isn't it? In both innings, I think it looked all right. Especially the first innings, I thought his balance was much better. He was sort of flicking broad a lot on the first day. Yeah. Um. And I, I and his setup had also sort of changed. He'd gone back to what he normally batted like instead of sort of batting outside yeah. off. But yeah. he just keeps getting himself outside. I don't think now is the right time to promote him. Travis Head potentially. But do you want to change your sort of a a working formula? Um. So exactly. while while Warner's runs haven't been there, I, I just feel Australia shouldn't reinvent the wheel and throw off a combination the interesting part then becomes do they go extra batting heavy and play both myth both mitchell marsh and green and then essentially just go full seam attack and i guess todd murphy sits out 
but yep. then Old Trafford is also renowned for being one of the slower tracks in yeah. the country. Will it be like that? I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, Australia's sort of reasoning for not bowling Todd Murphy was that the innings wasn't long enough. And, and you know, England are not batting very long. So how much exactly. bowling is Murphy really going to get? Mm-hmm. So you may as well go you know, extra batting and, and go for Green and, and Marsh potentially. Um and then give some overs to Travis Head. But I'm with you on the reinventing the wheel thing. I wouldn't put Travis Head at opener uh, at this stage. It's just too big a change. He may succeed in the role. We don't know. But it's just, speaking now, it's too big a change, particularly when the guy is killing it at number five. Yeah, so this is what I think will happen all Trump. But I think it'll be Warner, Kwaja, Labashane, Smith, Head, um, Marsh, Green, let's say both play. Um, yep. Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood. There's Carey there as well. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, Carey, uh, Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood. Um, I think maybe that's it. Michael Neeser comes in somehow and maybe Hazelwood doesn't play. I think Hazelwood will play, though. Um, Hazelwood will play, I reckon. And I think, I think Stark's got a rest, so I think he'll play. Um, yeah, I don't think, yeah. I can't see a situation where Green. Marsh and Nisa play on the, all play in the same eleven. You're going to yeah. get maximum two of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think Travis Head will give you overs with the with the spin if you need to change yeah. up the pace. Um, obviously so. Smith, Smith and Labuschagne are there too, but uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't nah. count them. If it gets to that point, then we're in trouble. <laughs> You're in trouble, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a fascinating series, though, right? Like every day, there's just some sort of oh, like yeah. new sort of pulsating tension. Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, I, I couldn't I couldn't split it at the start of the series. I had two yeah. all. Uh, I really did not know how this series would pan out. It just had the makings of an absolute classic, and it's turned mm-hmm. out to be that way so far. Yeah. Um, another point I thought just to touch on the eleven quickly. Um, you know, sure, sure. Australia really missed Nathan Lyon. You know, when oh, he went course. down injured, when he went down injured in that second test, dreading it completely. I was like, please just yeah. get out of Lords without a defeat. We won the game. That was an added bonus. But then, yeah. We miss him badly. Yeah, yeah and like, how time. can he not? He's played 100 in a row, right? You're so reliant on and him. And the quality, he, you know. Exactly. Yeah, he was our best bowler up until that point when he did his calf as well. So, yeah. oh, major blow, man. I mean, if you look at it around the world, like most of the good spin attacks have trios or couplets of spinners. So Ashwin, Jadeja, Akshay Patel. Um, yeah. Even England probably haven't had a good spinner for a while. With the, the Sri Lankans, they come in trios as well when they play yeah. up at Gaul or um, Kennedy. Yep. And Pakistan, probably not as spin reputed because of how sort of benign their tracks are. But oh, in Australia, there's like this yep. one guy holding it up away and at home. It's just remarkable. Um, That's what's been extent- impressive. He's allowed, he's allowed the fast bowlers to... to- to be as good as they are because he just holds up and they can rotate and he's building pressure. Exactly. You know, yeah. he's not then the fastballs are not over bowling themselves because the, the spinner's not holding up an end, right? He's done a magnificent job. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's gonna be it's gonna be another fascinating test match. I I wouldn't be surprised if it's three two, honestly, and I hate to say it, but like I don't know. I hate like, to Eng- say it as well, but I agree. England, yeah, England just because like the series could easily be three 0 England if they were just a bit more moderated in the way they played, and I guess that yep. isn't basketball to be moderated. That like that isn't what basketball does. Yeah. They they do what they want to do. But I felt in that third yeah. test match they actually had a bit more moderation. Like when Ben Stokes initially came out and he was like nineteen of forty or nineteen of forty five, and he's done that a few times this series by the way. So he's actually yep. one of the guys who's like blocked it out, or even when um. I think it was on the the first day. Yeah, I think it was on the first day when Bearstone and Root, they just blocked it out to see off the rest of the day. Like, Bearstone was like three of like 20 at, at the end. So there's a That's bit right. of sense coming in. It's um, also be, it's also a, just a willingness to rotate strike. Australia, as I said before, they're willing defense. to give you the singles and the twos. I thought Harry Brook did that very well in the, yeah. in the, in the chase. Um, you know, they kept, they kept, they were very busy and they kept things moving. You know, I, I don't remember too many ex- extravagant, crazy shots. It was a lot of basic cricketing shots and getting the ball into gaps, of which there were plenty. So, yeah, wouldn't surprise me if Australia go on and win 4-1 or 3-2 or whether England turn it around. Oh, 
if it's three two, mate, look look at the way they're going carrying on now at two one, the England media. Yeah, it's gonna you be, imagine it's gonna if be, it was three two. Yeah, I go in, I'd real. go into hiding. <laughs> I really I couldn't handle it. The, it would just be awful. It's gonna be a field yeah, day mate, for yeah. the, the spirit of cricket. Um and, and the oh, best oh, don't get me started on that again. <laughs> that's horrible. That's very cricket horrible. Stay in the yeah. and wait for the ball to be passed and play to the yep. rules of the game. You know one of the f- most funniest points? Like, we won't go too much into the sphere of cricket because that can go on for hours. But um, yep. one of the funniest points is if you go on the MCC website, um, they have something called a spirit of cricket preamble, right? And basically all that says is spirit of cricket refers to essentially respecting your opponent, playing fairly within the rules of the game. Carey's run out was completely... Alex Carey did all of that. So it's just like... When it's convenient. It was actually or... it was actually England who didn't respect the opponent. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. are they playing within the spirit? I guess yeah. the spirit of cricket means uh, different things to different people, right? Uh, for for England, it's it's just for me. I define the spirit of cricket. It's a card that England play when uh, a decision goes against them. Yeah. Um, same That's with it. Deep, That's the deep only time. Sharma, a few years ago, the, the yeah. man card. Yeah. I think yeah. Yep. I think yep. the word, word I like to use for it is it's just fabricated. They make it up when they feel like they need to make it up. Of course. I think as long as there is no sort of bad blood be- between oppositions and the rules are being played within, it's, it's great yeah. when you, you play on. No. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Do you, do you have any anything else to add? Any final points you want to make? No, not really. I think we've covered a lot. Um, yeah, fascinated to see what the conditions are like at Old Trafford and how that impacts yeah. uh, the team selections, uh, particularly for Australia and how they fit Marsh and Green in and... and Nisa is banging the door down and, and where they can find room for him. 170 odd yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and did, then uh, did, he's did taking wickets win? for fun they, as did well. Did they end up winning? Glamorgan, do they win? I think the thing won was uh, I haven't, I haven't, the I haven't looked. Yeah, yeah, but it's a ridiculous stock, 176. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they were in massive trouble. Yeah. Um, you know, he just slammed them all over the place. So he's going to be hard to ignore. Yeah, really can't wait for it. And I'm sure there's going to be many more twists and turns, but I hope Australia can seal the series in this game, uh, even with the draw. But I don't think it will be a draw if, there's, if the weather's fine. Uh, yeah, as long yeah. As, yeah, get the win. Because if it goes to two all, Australia keeps the ashes. Be, uh, if it goes to two all into the final game, I mean. Oh, then pressure. Say if England win, the pressure's yeah. going to be insane and intense. So yeah, this is like this is like the decider. Australia got to treat this as the decider. They go, we got to win this game because we don't want to be going into the last yeah. game to all. Really don't. There's going to be a lot of momentum if if it does get equalised. Of course, the noise will yeah. be insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you, thank you for joining me. Um, I think I think we had a quite no a productive discussion. Um, and yeah, uh, hopefully have you on many more times. And um, no worries, I, no worries at all. Have, have you on as well. We'll organise for it. All right, thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you.